0: One of the hosts on the Engage and Equip podcast. And I'm here today to do the follow-up podcast from the AMA questions that came in from the Risen series, which was about finding courage at the bottom. So Nick, before we jump right into the questions that we got over the course of those six weeks, why don't you give a brief synopsis of what that series was about?
1: Yeah, the um, the series was, a, was designed to look at the Psalms that particularly focused on profound and acute human suffering mm-hmm. um, from, but people who are not losing their faith, but are, are somehow finding a way to rise up personally, emotionally, psychologically in the midst of that. And to kind of like track that for ourselves, like, how, like, you know, bad stuff's going to happen to us. It's going to be horrible. Um, we're going to feel beaten down. We're going to feel like we're in a pit. Whatever. Like, how do you rise up out of that? So how yeah. do you apply the truths about Christ So, that we can be people that are both literally people of the resurrection of the body and also, like, metaphorically, like that we have very rebounding spirits and that we can rise Mm -hmm. out of whatever pit we get buried in.
0: Yeah, we had a number of questions come in that had to do, particularly, with suffering and then with the the concept of scorn and how we're supposed to understand that and receive that. Um, But first, before we jump into those things, there was a question specifically about um, Manohar, who is. on staff with us. And um, someone just wanted to know a little bit more about some of the hardships that he has been experiencing lately and then how we can support him and his family right now. So could you share a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, we don't share his last name partly because um, of like uh, extremists in the Indian government trying to like track him and harm Christians in India and so on. There's a lot of stuff that is very unpleasant that doesn't get in the news that you'll hear about some of these countries and how they attack minorities in inter- and especially Christian minorities. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, his, his dad died a couple weeks ago and, um, they had a small, um, funeral for him. Mm-hmm. And before the funeral, a bunch of people in his family somehow had contracted COVID.
0: Oh, and, sure.
1: Um, it hadn't really become symptomatic because people started coming down with it like two or three days after the funeral. And it was pretty fast. Uh, So it seemed pretty obvious that somebody got before it anyway. um, But they had like 12 or 13 people in the family become positive for COVID. Mm -hmm. And um, Jasmine, his wife, um, had lost a cousin, I think it was, to COVID. He had a a brother-in-law who was in the hospital with only 25% lung capacity. Mm -hmm. And not only was it just bad um, having that many people with COVID in your family, but – in addition to that, it was really bad because um, there are a lot of reports coming out about a lot of corruption in the Indian hospitals, especially in more rural areas where doctors haven't made a lot of money in a year and that they are you know, only giving patients some of medications and then selling the rest to more wealthy people, that they are billing families after their loved ones are dead for a couple of weeks still while they're billing another family for the patient who's still alive that they've put in that bed since the other person's died. I mean, it's really terrible, awful things. And um, I've heard reports from a few people that like aid is not getting to people like, like our government is sending aid, but that aid is more enriching the pockets of people who can control the where that money goes, as opposed to the people who need it, which is, you know, it's a perennial problem with aid. It's, it's not like it's strangely bad. But it's one of the reasons why there's a whole movement of people who are against aid, because even in acute circumstances like this, uh, sometimes it just doesn't really it doesn't do what you want it to. So between like corruption that's happening in the rural hospitals in Andhra Pradesh and, and all that kind of stuff, it's it's problematic. I shouldn't say too much more than that, but please continue to pray for him. It does look like people are recovering. Um but it is just, you know, it's really hard on him because of for visa reasons he can't visit India right now. For COVID reasons he can't visit. And um, some doctors and, and hospitals have increased the cost of care like two hundred percent uh, and so there, people are really getting, I mean, if you imagine like, you know, like a have there's a big ice storm and all of a sudden generators go from $300 to $3,000 in the United States. Like we assume that couldn't happen with hospital beds. Right. But the laws of supply and demand are the laws of supply and demand. And when you get a disease where you could die, right. What's the, what's the demand for that? Right. People will pay anything. So it's. The answer is charge people as much as you possibly can if you don't have an ethical reason not to do that. And that appears to be happening in some cases. So there is a GoFundMe for Menor. I don't know the URL off the top of my head, um, but if you want to give to it, you can email the church and we'll send you to it.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, additionally, for those of you listening, I mean, a handwritten card yeah. goes a long way just to let him know that you're, list- that you're thinking of him. And especially right now, when it is maybe less frequent that you're seeing him um, with COVID, just... Those kind of touches are great, too. That topic of what Menara is going through is very relevant to this, the, the whole topic of the series and some of the things that we're going to be talking about here. Um, so in terms of suffering, um, someone asked, in Psalm 32, could one interpret bones wasting away as physical symptoms as well as spiritual? Could conscience and confession have an effect on us physically?
1: yeah i mean i think i think that that statement um is supposed to refer to a physical effect of an emotional thing so so yeah the the unwillingness to confess um produced us like a sickness in him but and, and i think that it's reasonable to say that it had physical manifestations i think that's what i mean what does the metaphor my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Right. Mean like that. He was like, it seems to me that like he had an emotional problem that ultimately was taking a physical toll. And it was really only because of that terrible physical toll that he ultimately relented.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's hard for us to, I don't know why, but it's hard for us to believe that there can be such a strong connection between what's going on with us mentally and or emotionally or spiritually with our with how we are doing physically um, unless you mm-hmm. you have experienced that like that degradation of yourself your physical self because of mm-hmm. something you're going through that's difficult
1: I more and more I'm talking to people who are depressed and anxious whose physical bodies are just like essentially ravaged by their their inability to handle their own internal mental life. And so they might not have, uh, have immediately used the metaphor of bones wasting away. But, um, you know, the next verse, it says for all Dana, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Right. Or you might say, uh, my, my, I was, I was just constantly drowsy, like during allergy season. Like, I mean, there's a, there's a number of ways in which people just feel like they're walking zombies because they're emotionally just burnt out inside. Um, or they just have any strength to get out of bed or like, I mean, my strength was slapped as in the heat of summer, my bones waste So that sounds like clinical depression, right? What we, right. So we have like a modern, like antiseptic medical terminology for it. Right. But, um, and so we go, Oh, because it's, we've medicalized the thing we call it. So maybe the, the result is we give people medicine for it, which some, I mean, sometimes that is something we do, but what David is talking about is like a refusal to repent or a refusal to turn to God. And that that created a, a splitting in his integrity and his soul and that breaking of his internal personhood, like created an emotional cost and that emotional cost was destroying him. And ultimately it was him turning around and repenting that made a difference. I was talking with a psychologist on Sunday and she talked about like therapies that she has, she does to alleviate the intense pain of shame. And she said, she was talking about a woman who like ran off and cheated on her husband and did some really terrible stuff and didn't have any moral gravity about it, but felt some shame about it, but not a ton. And the husband was like, are you going to do that therapy for beforehand? And she's like, no, <laughs> no, because shame in her particular place is productive. It's not based on like some past trauma that she doesn't understand that creates a feeling of shame. That's inappropriate. She needs to f- actually feel more shame because what she's doing is morally repugnant. And so, shame is a productive emotion. So, if I do some kind of psychological thing to neurologically help her not feel shame, I'm actually hurting her. You know, and I thought that was, I was like, yes, that sounds like the right thing to do.
0: Another uh, question was, had more to do with how to deal with that suffering when you are experiencing it. So, um, the question. Was how do you balance the need to constantly root out bitterness with the need to not be narcissistic as you inwardly focus on working through pain and hurt? What are some more practical ways to avoid being a narcissist without ignoring the things that you need to tend to?
1: So, first of all, if you use the word balance in your question, the answer is going to say something like, "Very carefully," because it's a you've you said you think it's a balance. That's the issue, right? Um, if there's like a quote trick to it, or or like a principle by which to figure it out, I'd say. That um, you you have to sort of keep track of like to what extent are you focusing on yourself for the sake of yourself and to what extent are you seeking to like honor God by releasing harbored bitterness. Generally speaking, harboring bitterness towards others is an act of human pride and tends towards narcissism right? Because you're holding onto it because you're so important that you should receive justice for this injustice that's happened to you. So I think that the, if you're really rooting out bitterness, if that's really what you're doing, then it's sort of by definition, moving away from narcissism. If the fear is, it sounds like the fear here is um, like an unhelpful amount of introspection. I think that's what maybe they're referring to as narcissism. Um, because you're digging around for a root of bitterness, like in your psychology, like in your emotions, right? Right. And my answer is, yeah, if you're digging around and it's not obviously there, then I wouldn't just dig around forever. But if you just like were, you just were mean to somebody who you shouldn't have been mean to and you don't really know why, right? The answer is, well, there's probably a reason. And there is a root of bitterness there probably and it's worth, it's worth trying to sort out. And usually it's not that – usually if you're honest with yourself and you can get in just a mental state of reverie so that it can come up and you allow yourself to think about it a little bit, usually it comes up. It's there. If you're used to having mm-hmm. an open sort of dialogue with yourself, I guess or something something like that. Usually it's not this like deep repressed thing that you have no idea what it is. It's like, you know what it is.
0: Right. Yeah. And this is one of those questions that I, I do think a helpful answer is by talking with other believers who know you and who you can ask for their Insights or opinions about how you are handling something and how you're reflecting on something. If it's becoming um, so inwardly focused that you're not paying attention to anyone else or um, other like circumstances outside of yourself and your situation, um, like that's that's a helpful gauge too as you're navigating those waters.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think asking them if if you appear to be appropriately concerned about the well being of others, including their emotions. How they feel, and do you use courtesy, and do you appear interested in others? Truly, is a better test of narcissism rather than how much you're pursuing internal roots Yeah, that's good.
0: We had a couple questions that had to do with Christ's suffering and how we are to understand that, and His, um, for example, God forsaking Christ, and how we see that in Scripture. So. The first question is, it's it's my understanding from what you said that God the Father didn't forsake Christ when he died on the cross. However, I thought that since Jesus became sin for us, and, and we see this in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God couldn't look on him. How are we to understand these two realities as compatible?
1: A lot of preachers have said that um, God can't look on sin and God made Christ to be sin for us. So therefore, when Jesus was on the cross, God couldn't look at him. Right? I don't have any problem with that as long as you understand it's a metaphor. It's not like that God literally can't look at sin. Like it it can't come within his field of vision or mental vision, right? Like God's quote, sees sin constantly. So he's competent to judge it, like and they, like all through Scripture, it says that God can see sin, right? So like when, so like you just, you, I mean, this is a, just a classic example of like we take metaphors too far. Like so, okay, can I pick on you mm. for just a second, Aaron? Sorry about this. Of course. Like, yeah. So this this morning we were on a call and you went, you'd gone like wine tasting with your husband and you were like, you know, we were talking, <laughs> about, we were talking about grapes and how like they were saying at the vineyard that like grapes actually become sweeter and better quality through drought, like like not having a lot of water as opposed to more. And then I was thinking how that related to mm-hmm. like John 15, where Jesus, you know, God is the father is the vine and like, we are the branches and like, right. And you're like, I wonder how that relates. Mm-hmm. And of course I was thinking not at all, like none, zero, there's no relationship, but, but here's <laughs> the, the difference. It's one thing to say, is this fact about grapes that I learned while well, learning about grapes relevant to a proper understanding of what Jesus intended me to get from John 15, there's a difference between mm-hmm. that and saying, you know, as a metaphor, like learning this about grapes, is it like, is it like true, true in some cases that like God can make me sweeter through drought? And the answer is of course, mm-hmm. and that is it. That is a useful metaphor spiritually, but just don't think John 15 teaches that, right? John doesn't, John 15 is about the connection between the main branch of a vine plant, right? The the main stem and then the branches. And how like if one of those branches gets disconnected from the main root, then what happens is it dies. Right. And so in order for us to bear fruit, to bear much fruit, we have to stay connected to the vine and receive that nourishing sap from the main stalk of the plant so that we can be productive. So us remaining in God, staying connected to the main branch is fundamental to us bearing fruit. And it's the way we don't end up in the fire, right? And that's as far as that metaphor goes. Does that make sense. When we talk about God looking on sin, if you want to say God couldn't look on Christ, that is that there was like a separation, and that part of, um, part of the cross was Jesus receiving the scorn of God Himself. That is, that is, everybody who is, um, who is, uh, who is killed on a tree, right, is cursed under the curse of God. That like, that's true. That's true, right? But I think one of the reasons why. Why Jesus recited Psalm 22 is because it was both true and not true. That in, uh, in Psalm 22 there's this recognition of being forsaken by God, but then there's a forsaken of there is a experience of a broader truth that the person is not ultimately forsaken by God, and of course that's true of Christ, right? There's a way in which Christ is forsaken by the Father on the cross. That is, He's given over to death. The father lets him die. And, you know, Jesus says to Peter in the garden when he, when Peter tries to defend him, don't you think I can have like legions of angels here to defend me if I wanted them? Like, it's not like I or the father could not defend me. And in that sense, he let him be killed by the murderers who, who killed him. And in that sense, God forsook him. He did it. Forsaking means to depart from the action of saving another, right? He let him go. Yet at the same time, what Psalm 22 acknowledges is that God does not ultimately forsake his righteous one to the grave. Like he does it like there is a redemptive story in Psalm 22, which is also true of Jesus on the cross. So the way I would handle that is just like, let the metaphors be what they are. And sometimes metaphors have layers and they play with other metaphors. And it's it's a, like the truth is literary, right? It's not philosophically literal. And so, you let it do what it should do for you emotionally and know that it's true by analogy, but you don't have to believe that it's true. Like, you know, cause like, uh, listen, I believe in the whole of the Bible. I believe the Bible is the word of God written. I believe it's inspired by God. I believe it's inerrant in the autographs. Like I, like I have spent a lot of my life as a Christian defending, believing in the scriptures as they exist. Right. But one of the things that happens to people like us who really do believe in God's word is we can we sometimes think that with the more literal we are, the more faithful we're being. And that's just not true about words. Does that make sense? And we need to remember that.
0: Yeah. We need to be able to, to make a distinction where where things are being strictly metaphor and or poetic and where it is being you know as and a right. historical account and yes, and all we as we grow, those are the distinctions that show maturity, not yeah being able to make everything literal as we yeah come across and and,
1: it. and listen i totally understand historically why some people get really like upset about this because in the mm-hmm. in the fundamentalist fun, modernist controversy there like what was happening was language that was intended to be analogically literal like that we were supposed to take it at face value to be true was being described to describe something completely different that had nothing to do with what the literary methods of the bible were trying to teach and so mm-hmm. because of that, a lot of Bible-believing Christians were like, this is nonsense. Like, we need to, we need to take that. So uh, mm-hmm. like a lot of scholars at the turn of the 20th century referred to taking the Bible literally. And they would use the word literal. But what they meant by the word literal was to take the Bible precisely as it means to be speaking in any particular context. It didn't mean to take the phrase sure. as literally yeah. as you possibly can does that make sense? And like fundamentalists mm-hmm. get this because yeah. if you talk to yep. a fundamentalist who interprets the book of revelation, they believe that the that the locusts with human faces are probably like Russian helicopters or something. Mm-hmm. Right? Like the, like so p- people have mm-hmm. always done that. They've recognized that certain kinds of literature aren't meant to be interpreted totally literally. So one of the things we have to do is say, we're not the, the right. point is not how literal can, can I take this or how not literal. The question is how is this author using language? And intending to teach me with the language. Mm -hmm. And then you just use the natural understanding of syntax and grammar to learn what the author is trying to tell you, being faithful to how they are using the language. And if you're being faithful to how they're using the language, you're fulfilling what the old fundamentalists called reading the Bible literally, which I am totally for. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean Mm -hmm. that I'm for pedantically taking everything as literally as you possibly can, even when that's not the intention of the biblical author.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: One more point on this before I move on. Therefore, yes. it's helpful to read around the context of a statement in scripture mm-hmm. to understand how that metaphor is being used. So like in John 15, the, the focus of the metaphor of the vine is the connection between the branches and the main part of the vine. That's the main metaphor, right? And that's that's how we are like vines. It doesn't mean we're like vines in every way possible. Now, like Now, the insight you had is can still be a productive, helpful insight. And it can be totally true in a way and in a way that you find spiritually enriching. And it may even be that the Holy Spirit was working in you and using that metaphor. Just don't think that's what John 15's about. Does that make sense? Right. And yeah,
0: don't you're right, I shouldn't be going like teaching that. Yeah. To say this is what right. John 15 says and to draw that conclusion. Right. I could say, yeah, like we can think and about it. You'd be this, prone to, to do that this.
1: because Yeah, and you'd be prone Mm -hmm. to do that because it's special to you that the Spirit brought that insight while you were hanging out with your husband and you were thinking about Mm -hmm. how that relates to your life. And it'd be very easy to read that in, but that actually wouldn't be great ministry-wise. Right? So, But look, if you're talking to somebody who's going through suffering and... You're looking at how God is working in their life. You know from other scriptures that God uses suffering to to change us into maturity. You could say, "Hey, listen, look, there's this thing about grapes that's kind of that like has ministered to me," and then you just tell them at that as an illustration. They might find that incredibly helpful, you know. So.
0: All right, well, so the, the next question um, that had to do with the broader category of suffering um, is someone someone brought up how Hebrews 2.10 says that in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. So this person asks, how is this particular verse an encouragement to us as we reflect on this series?
1: So, so some people suffer, struggle with this because the idea of Jesus being made perfect seems really weird. How can the son, the second person of the Trinity who has been perfect from eternity past be made perfect? That's not really the point, right? So this gets back to the whole, like, how is the metaphor being used thing, right? So he's saying that Jesus as the, as the author of our faith or the pioneer of our faith, right? That, um, as that figure, he is being, that the author of their salvation is, be made perfect through suffering. So to be made perfect as the author or pioneer, right. um, Is to be made perfect in that role. So Jesus as the pioneer of the faith of the rest of us, right. That's, that's what this verse is talking about, that, that Jesus functions, not just as our savior, right. But he's also the pioneer of our faith. He is not only the one who creates our faith, but he is like the truly, the first truly faithful man, right. The first truly faithful human. And as the first truly faithful human, right? He is a pioneer for us. Like he, he creates a way for us through the cross, but he also makes a way. He leads us like as a leader, so to speak by enduring suffering. You know what I mean? Like if, if you were going to be a pattern for women in something, right. Or for people in something, right. You're going to be that, let's say you're, you're going to be the greatest, I don't know, interior redecorator in the history of the world. Right. It would be great if you like, had to interior redecorate some really tough spaces to, to, in, to interior decorate. Like it, really hard ones. And like you made something really beautiful out of it. And then other people are like, well, I mean, they wouldn't just be like, well, you know, Aaron likes to buy new things. They'd be like, did you see what Aaron did with that place? Cause it looked terrible. And then she made it look beautiful. If you're listening to this, Erin actually does like redecorating her house over and over and over again. We made a joke about this on like a different thing. I was out with her. That's why I'm using this. I'm not just using some like vague, stereotypical feminine category to be sexist. Okay.
0: <laughs> I like to rearrange. Yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah. And so like, you know, the fact that you did the hardest thing in your field matters, right? So Jesus as the perfect author of our faith, as the first truly faithful human, him going through the hardest thing humans go through makes him the perfect author of our faith and pioneer of our faith. Does that make sense? So so like, if he hadn't suffered greatly, human beings throughout all of history and following him would just be like, you know, Jesus doesn't know what I'm going through. Like, I mean, I mean, and people do struggle with like, yeah, but he was still God, which is true, but he was also fully man and he suffered horrifically. And he did do that as a perfect and faithful human being. And so, so the idea is, is that as we follow him, we follow somebody who has experienced the worst of everything and really, in the most concrete way, can sympathize with us. And I think that that, in some ways, is for us. Because I think that God has the psychological capacity to sympathize without experiencing anything through abstract knowledge. So I don't I don't think Jesus actually had to do it to really know what it felt like. Um, but I think that for us, right, right, Jesus comes to be incarnate, to be an example, to show so that we can see the glory of the Father in him, full of grace and truth. Like, everything Jesus is doing is for our benefit. Does that make sense? And I think even his suffering is for our benefit.
0: Yeah, even the word pioneer, like to, to me, I think about the people who are following that person and that the emphasis is on the followers, even though uh, with that specific word pioneer being used.
1: The The word in Greek is like, it's a, just a word that's like built on the word for first. It, it, like etymologically, means the first one. So, founder. Um, Sometimes it's used for like princes or governors, that kind of thing, because they're they're the first in terms of levels of authority. So the word just kind of means like first one. So founder, leader, prince, those are some of the glosses in the Greek dictionaries.
0: All right, we're going to shift a little bit to talk more specifically about scorn. Um, Before we get to these few questions, can you summarize what scorn is and what it isn't so that we have that clear before we ask these questions.
1: Yeah. I mean, essentially scorn is the dislike is the express to dislike other people put on you in the attempt to humiliate you or shame you.
0: All right. So one person said um, in, I don't remember which Psalm it was that you talked about this specifically, um, but David seemed to want his enemies to be damned in this psalm, mm-hmm. how do we reconcile this with Jesus' call to love our enemies? How should we feel toward and pray about those who attack us? And and then, yeah, how do we make sense of that with what David had said?
1: Right. Okay. So this is going to be this is going to sound like a contradiction. So listen, please listen very carefully. To this. Okay. Um, I believe that every Christian should both a hope for the damnation of sinners and b hope for the redemption and complete reconciliation of sinners to God and to ourselves. Okay, that is that um, if somebody harms other people and commits injustice unrepentantly, such that there's nothing that exists either in that, it, like there's there's no desire in them to be reconciled and they don't turn from what they did. And it costs others. Like uh, one of the, th- I mean, there's this weird thing with human beings that like we, we have this incredible ability to disassociate Like the what other people did, as long as it wasn't to us. Like one example of this is like we watch movies all the time where like somebody like murders someone in cold blood, and then later in the movie we're supposed to forget it and totally like them. Mm -hmm. And they're a like they're a murderer, like right? But like I'm you know I'm a pastor. I love Jesus. I follow him as best I can. I preach about him all the time. And like, I go through that same emotional thing in, in the film. Like I, like I, I want the guy to win. I, I, I want the best for him. And he's a mer- like he is a horrific criminal. You know what I mean? There's this, there's just this weird thing in us. And so like in scripture, there's this affirmation over and over and over again, that the, I, the idea that like you would want the person who destroyed your life to be damned is perfectly reasonable and there's nothing wrong with it right and um, you have to, you are called in Christ to want them to be reconciled to God through Christ so that you lose that claim on them and the main reason for that is, is because if you don't you're you have rejected grace and embraced hypocrisy in one person perpetrating a wrong against me right? I'm innocent in that the crime has been perpetrated against me. My heart cries out for justice and I say, they should be punished for what they've done. And that's correct. They should be punished for what they've done, right? But on a a broader scale, right? I am a sinner in a world where I have been a perpetrator of all kinds of things towards others. And God has made a provision for me to be forgiven rather than condemned in the death and resurrection of Christ, right? And so I've put my trust in Christ. I've repented of my sins and turned to him, right? And he has forgiven me. Now, if I will receive forgiveness through Christ, given freely and graciously, just out of the generosity of God, and then I turn to this other person who's been a perpetrator like me and I say, you can't be forgiven. You should be condemned then that's actually the rejection of grace and hypocrisy, which is which which is an injustice and a perpetration and a, and a repudiation of the salvation of God. And so and that's the, that's one of the only conditions that God makes for salvation for those of us who believe. if you for, if you receive forgiveness, you must forgive others. I think that the in the human heart so, and you can see this in Romans 12 right? There's this place where we're told not to um, not to engage in revenge and, he, and then he says, because God has said, is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. And then he says, um, he says there's this, he says there's this place in the book of Proverbs that says, um, if your enemy's hungry, give him something to eat, right? And he says, and then he says, because it says, in doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Let me read the verse for you real quick. So he says, he, he says, Don't take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, right? For it is written, is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, notice that what he's saying is, why shouldn't we take revenge? Because revenge is inherently bad and, and utterly illogical. No, he says, don't take revenge. Instead, step back and leave room for God to be the wrathful, damning, revenge-taking one. Right? And why, well, why is that? Because God has said, not, I don't believe in revenge. I don't believe in damnation. I don't believe in, in, in mediating, punishing justice. No, God has just said, that belongs to me, not you. So it's not an issue of God not believing in it, that He's God's too soft or he's too nice or something like that. No, he doesn't trust you to do it. He doesn't trust me to do it. That's It's not for us, right? There's no way that if we do it, there's going to be a, a final justice. There's just going to be like, we're going to perpetrate worse than the other person and we're still going to have a balance of injustice, right? So he says, no, that's mine. And then he says, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to eat or drink, right? And, this, and he says, in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I have, I've read commentators who have tried to say that that means heaping burning coals on somebody's head that you, sh- that you're like giving fire to somebody in a context in which cooking is important. That's not what it means. It's not a nice thing. It's by being gracious to that person, like by being good to them, you're dumping burning fire on top of them, right? What, and like, why does that make sense? It makes sense because if God is the one who repays damnation, not you, right? And you are gracious and loving. That is, you don't, you don't add to the injustice, right? You offer graciousness, love. What you're doing is you're making the injustice worse that the other purpose, person is perpetrating. They're not responding to grace. They're not turning around. They're not paying you back evil for evil. They're paying you back evil for good. Right. And so, what's happening is their guilt is increasing and getting worse and worse and worse and worse if they don't repent. If they do repent, then they're justified in Christ. They turn from it. They become your brother and sister. Right. They're changed by grace. And that's a great thing. And you celebrate because that's how you were saved. Right. But otherwise, what you're doing is you're heaving burning clothes on the head. So, in that sense, what's happening is one of the so we can love somebody who's perpetrating evil against us because one of two things is going to happen. Either A, they will get saved just like us. Or B, they won't, and God will avenge and repay. And so either way, justice will happen. Either the justice of equally given mercy, you were saved in the death of Christ, and they were saved in the death of Christ. You were a perpetrator and you were forgiven, they were a perpetrator and they were forgiven. Right? Or the opposite, that is, that you were forgiven in Christ, and they refused that forgiveness, and received damnation. And by loving them, you made it worse. So, you know, like, like your your kids probably aren't old enough, but there's a point where, like, when kids get to where one kid does something wrong, the other kid like responds in kind, and then after that, they want you to parent, including punishing somebody. And you're just like, I can't punish anybody because you guys have mucked this whole thing up with your like equal perpetration and injustice. Like, like, what am I supposed to do? How do I make this right? There's no way to make this right. Like, you've turned this into junkyard law, and now you want me to make this like, you know, wandering through the Louvre, like all civilized and everything. Like, it's not gonna happen. If you want a civilized life, you have to choose it, you know? And like it, so, this is why Jesus goes, Listen, you don't have to mete out any revenge. Right? as a Christian we don't have to we don't have to do any revenge taking we just we love people and our love will either win them over by grace or it will confirm their damnation and you're like well that sounds kind of me. that's exactly what God is doing like God is pouring out grace into the world to sinners who pay no attention his his purpose in it is to save them that's what it says in John 3 God didn't send Jesus in the world to condemn the world but so that through him it might be saved but then it says, But then it also says those who reject him are condemned already. And it also says that their condemnation becomes worse because they've rejected God's one and only son. That is, it says they're condemned already in Christ. That is, the gracious offer of Christ, when rejected, triples your damnation. I mean, obviously triples, like I'm making that up, but like it increases it dramatically because you've spurned grace. Like you've been offered a way out, you've been offered a new life of justice and righteousness, like of pursuing God and being changed from the inside out through His Spirit, and you you rejected that. That's as evil as any other evil you've perpetrated by choosing to confirm yourself in that damning path. So, so I think the sh- the short answer to that question is yes, it is right for Christians to want the damnation of their enemies, but that is not the only thing to be said. Right? It's also true. That we are we hold the position of Christ, who, in that same situation, said, "Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. right? Because from a wider perspective, our hope is that that's the case. that when they experience the kindness of God through us, as they perpetrate injustice against us, when we love our enemies, that they will turn to Christ.
0: In one of your sermons, you had said that since we can't be immune to scorn, we need to be healthy in order to withstand it when we do face it. So I think this question is specifically for you, Nick. How have you practically in the past accepted scorn in a healthy way? And then maybe beyond that, in in general, how can people practically accept scorn in a healthy way?
1: I don't know that I have accepted a whole lot of scorn in a really healthy way. I've mostly just learned to accept it in not quite as bad a way as possible. right? So um, I was listening to a podcast on Anchor this morning that was really interesting where she said, you know, detaching yourself in such a way as to never get angry is probably better than blowing up all the time and acting recklessly, but it's still probably not good. The, the point I was making in that sermon is that you had, you had, um, David who, um, faced a lot of scorn and the way he spoke in the Psalm was not that like, I think this is Psalm 69. The, the, the idea was, was you, you, don't have a robotic Psalm, right? In Psalm 69, like David is deeply hurt. I mean, he's, he's, he's crying out and talking about the pain of the scorn that he's feeling and um and he's turning to God with it. So, like the example of Psalm sixty-nine, is somebody who is being attacked by other people, being scorned, humiliated, intimidated, and all of that. And he doesn't just receive it and go, "Oh, the love of Jesus is, fills me," and I I don't feel a thing. That no, I mean, like you actually have, you go through the emotions. Like you you feel attacked because you're you're a human being. When your security is attacked, like you, you feel threatened, right? And you and that hurts. And it makes you feel afraid and those sorts of things. And then the question is, what do you do with those emotions, right? As a Christian, what you do with those emotions is you turn to God. You try to recognize the wider reality than your visceral reaction, right? If God is with you, who could be against you? And that um, you don't have to fear those who can kill the body, but can't throw the soul into hell, uh, right? You can trust the one who is the author and perfecter of your faith through suffering, right? Like, you, like there, you have these resources by which you know who you are in the midst of this and so it will it will on one level it will dull the pain coming in and it'll allow you to cope the, with the pain that hits you one of the ways i was i was trying to explain this to people is because see like if you try to stop it from ever hurting you the main thing that ends up happening there is um you you end up like shutting down your emotions and not letting stuff in like, that's really the only reason. Right. Way you
0: can Entirely. It. Both negative yeah. and positive emotions. <laughs>
1: right. Yeah. Right. So, I was explaining this to somebody the other day. It's kind of like, the like imagine the human body, right? Like, you could go, you could be like, I don't know, like a slug or something where, like, you're just so soft that everything gets in and you're just going to get killed. Right. So, you just have to, like, so, if you're going to be that soft, you actually have to avoid everything. Right. I, I have one child that's like very highly emotional. It's just, it's like, it's that child's temperament. The child is growing into it, but, it, it it causes that child to be very reactive, right? And so, like I've seen that child just be avoided, just not want to engage with people because it's just emotionally really hard for that particular kid. Um, and as that kid grows, they have to figure it out, right? Um, you can also be a crab, right? You have like you're really hard on the outside; you don't let anything in, right? But nobody wants to pet you, you know, like you're 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 just hard. You're <laughs> crabby. You're just you're you know you're right. you basically people avoid like you. Right, right. Because like, like the only useful appendage you can have is like a pincher. You know what I mean?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and so, but if you think about the human body, like you've got skin on the outside, right? And then you've got flesh and organs and then you have bone. So the hardest thing is actually at the core, not on the outside, right? And then you have soft tissue. And then on the outside, you have skin, which is like one of your most remarkable organs. It's like, it's waterproof. It's really soft. And yet it's pretty tough. And then there's like just the right amount of hair over it to give it like a little something extra, but it maximizes what you can feel and yet minimizes what gets through, but it's not in any sense impenetrable. And if it is broken, it has the capacity to heal. I think that's as good a metaphor as you can get for like the emotional membrane that is created through what we just call psychologically differentiation, like knowing who you are and knowing how you're not other people and they are not you. And sometimes in Christianity, we'll refer to this as knowing who you are in Christ You have to individually know who you are as a human being and the fact that you belong to Christ and what that means for you as a human being. And you have to have that pretty well settled in your heart and mind in an actively emotional way. It's one of the reasons why we encourage people to like pray every day. Like people talk about, well, you know, like I pray and like I ask God for stuff, but it's really about resetting me and centering me, so to speak. I don't really like that new agey talk, but that is what it does, right? Like when you pray to God, you are by definition clarifying for yourself who you are. You are a person. You are connected to God. God loves and cares about you and wants to hear from you. This is who you are. I don't think you should pray with those things in mind, but I think you should pray because that's what it does to your mind. So given that, then you like emotionally you can have skin. You can feel everything. You're emotionally available. You're interacting with people for real. When people attack you, it really does hurt. But when you love people, they really can feel it. You're attentive to other people's emotions because you really are feeling what they're putting off. Right, you're not closed off, and also you can feel the good. So you can feel encouragement when somebody says you did a great job. You really feel that. You don't. You don't just like deflect it, just like you would deflect an attack. And and then, so then when something does hurt you, just like your skin, right, you wash the wound, and it heals, and it takes a little time, but it'll heal. And some of the really bad ones will leave some scars, but it's better to have scars than to like wear full metal plate armor all the time,
0: right? Or to walk around with it seeping right. wound that right. never heals <laughs> Yeah. well we're gonna shift majorly here we've got a couple of questions that were unrelated to the sermon of the sermon series first one is just simply why did peter deny jesus
1: yeah this is asked by like an eight-year-old boy
0: yeah <laughs> but it's so the- fine because when it was asked i was like yeah that's good. I want to hear Nick's answer on this.
1: Yeah, so it's it's really not that complicated, right? D- Peter denied Jesus because he was scared. They were in the process of trying Jesus. They were really hostile. They ended up killing him. And if people understood that Peter was his closest friend, if they decided that Jesus was an ins- insurrectionist and they killed him for it, what do you think they're going to do to his closest friend? Right. And so Peter was scared, and he denied that he knew Jesus.
0: Yeah. I'm finally watching The Chosen and mm-hmm. I'm not very far into it, but every interaction that I see between Peter and Jesus makes me tear up because I know what's coming and mm-hmm. just just seeing seeing that relationship, how they portrayed it in that show. I'm just like, Oh, that's just it's gonna really rip my heart out. It's just it's helpful to have like a visual like that when I've read that scripture so many times, but to to really think about yeah like what would I do in that situation with when my if my best friend had just been killed and would that be my response and that yeah just it's hard. Okay, this was a um, a parenting question. So as parents. What can we do to help our children feel safe to share their struggles with us? And I suppose this question, maybe the answer is different depending on the age of the child, but.
1: Yeah, I mean, as the most approachable person in the world, I think I can answer <laughs> this question.
0: <laughs> you do have four children, so. I do, yeah. <laughs> you have experience I, at least.
1: Yeah. Um. Yeah, I, I am not the most approachable person in the world. And I'm also not the best parent in the world. So take this answer for what it's worth. Um, I think people talk to you when they feel like you really listen to them and hear what they're actually saying. Like they got out of it what they were hoping to, (laughs) right? Like if a kid comes Mm -hmm. and talks to you and they get out of it, what you're hoping to do, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's great for you for that interaction. But the likelihood that you've motivated for them, them to talk to you again because when they're deciding whether or not to talk to you, they're wondering what, whether they're going to get out of it what they need to get out of it, which may not be what you want to do. So I think, I think I'm trying to make sure that they get either what they want to get out of it or what you give them is so valuable, and they can tell it's so valuable. I I usually don't. I mean, I don't I don't yell at my kids when they come and talk to me. For example, like you know, and I I try to listen to them and make sure I, I really understand what they're saying before I say anything. You know. Alexia and I are fairly confrontational parents, but like we're also listening parents. Like there'll be times where I'll just sit and the girls will just talk to me for like, I don't know, an hour or more. Mm-hmm. And I, in my mind, I'm just like swimming mentally. Like there's so much I should be telling you about these things you're saying. And yeah. I just, I just listen.
0: I was just going to ask that. Like, are there times when you just have to hold your tongue because you know that the priority And the more fruitful outcome would be if you just listen rather than correcting or directing or.
1: Yeah, that's constant. I mean, it's just always Um, people just don't remember stuff you say to them. So like, you got to say it at a time when they'll get it. I've also found that you can listen to your kids too much and not Mm. tell them the truth enough so Mm. that they stop talking to you because you don't tell them what they, you don't, you don't play the role of parent. Yeah. You know, so like yeah. there was a point where Alexi was just like really focusing on just listening to the girls, our older two kids, right? Just listen to them, you know, and they stopped, they kind of stopped talking to her as much and they started talking to me more and it really hurt her feelings because, and, and they were like, and she's finally like, why do you go talk to dad? He's not a good listener. Like he talks at you like why? And I listen like, and I'm available. Why would you do that? And they're like, well, mom, you tell us we're great. And dad tells us the truth and she was like oh i'm being too affirming (laughs) (laughs) yeah so she engaged in corrective action you know like and and that's just part of parenting like because you you know you're always trying to 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 shoot these medians of like being Mm -hmm. a good listener but telling the truth like being friendly with your kids but at the end of the day you're not their friend you're their parent and there's differentiation there and so on like you're always balancing these tensions i mean all of life is that but parenting is that like big time and so, like, making sure I listen to my kids. And and then the other thing, like, um, one of the things is I try to make sure, like, when I tell my kids how to live right, so to speak, I try to share stories of my own struggles
0: hmm.
1: where I'm, like, I remember struggling with this and what I was yeah. like and, like, how I thought and how I did it really bad. And
0: mm-hmm. here's
1: what I learned. And generally mm-hmm. speaking, they're, then, they're, then they're going away thinking, like, okay, dad, dad went through this life stage, too. Dad was bad at this. And then he turned over a new leaf. He went a different direction. He mastered a new discipline. He believed God in the right way. Like he did something and I can do it too. As opposed to saying like, oh yeah, that's wrong. Do it this way. And then not tell them mm-hmm. how I learned it.
0: Right. Um, yeah. They,
1: they think I always did it right. Or I think that, or I'm pretending that. So I think sharing what you would tell your kids by saying, oh yeah. Like I tell my kids about all kinds of my sins. and obviously there are liabilities to that if you do it in a way that gives them license to do it but um but you, there is the other way where you act like you are without struggles so that again is one of those deals where like be careful how you do it
0: mm-hmm. my wife
1: is really good at this where Alexi will like exp- like share her struggle with it without saying it in a way that made it makes it feel like and it's no big deal if you do what i did
0: mm-hmm.
1: right like i'm telling yeah. you this to spare you you know?
0: yeah <laughs> Uh, there are a couple of questions that have to do more with our uh, reality as we live here in America and just some of the, um, just what's going on right now in our culture. Um, so this question is, I often pray for God's will to be done on earth. However, I fear that God's will is that Americans will lose our religious liberty and economic freedoms. How should a faithful Christian resolve this prayer conflict?
1: Yes. Yeah, so let me say a couple things about this. Um, one is that's good that you're praying that um, the nations rise and fall. They rage against the Lord and he laughs at them. And the United States is, I believe the United States is a great nation in relative to other nations that have existed in the history of the world. And it still is a nation that is, does not submit to the Lord. And it's still a nation that will rise and fall and its nations will shake their fists against God and he will laugh at them so it's good you like in that sense like we can be good citizens and you can actually be a very patriotic citizen and believe that america has been a predominantly good place relative to a whole bunch of things obviously um and but still recognize that it still is a nation it's an it's a you know it's a, it's an institution that he, it's humans created on earth like any other and it may run its course or it may decline and you know etc right the second thing is to say you could be wrong um the united states america has been um, going down a more socialist and more rights destroying path than it is right now. Um, if you doubt that, just like read about the time of Woodrow Wilson Wood- and Woodrow Wilson claimed to be a Bible believing Christian in a certain way, but he was also like, he just was a, pro- was a progressive in the old eugenicist kind of sense. I say old, just because I want to be nice to modern people who would label themselves progressives. There's a bunch of different kinds of progressives now. Some I think are just really awful in how they view the world. I think it's very inhuman. And then others, it's kind of like they're really trying to figure out the best way for us to progress. And there's a lot of spectrum in between, and I don't want to pretend it's all the same because it's not. By some definition, I would say I'm a progressive. and By most definitions, I would say I'm not. You know, Same thing with conservative. By a certain definition, if I could define conservative, I would say I'm a conservative. And if I if I had to listen to other people's, most of them, I would say I'm not a conservative. So like we have been like, we, I mean, there, well, there have been brown shirts patrolling streets in the United States. Um, there have been people thrown in jail for like, not obeying government price controls also because the United States is trailing behind um, the, the new world infatuation with socialism. It is possible that some of the terrible things about how socialism destroys human life will happen before we're fully committed to it as a country. Um, also, if socialistic experiments go bankrupt before the rights are fully lost, then societies tend to snap back. There's also the whole Tolkien idea that evil devours itself. Um, it is true that like evil people are bold and they will do very bold things. And most of the time, good people don't want to stand up against it, but it's also true that evil people devour each other. And sometimes um, God uses that in really, in really incredible ways to, to vindicate people. I think what Christians should pray for is justice. They should pray for God's grace and mercy on our country. I, I think that they should recognize that God can do as he pleases with America just as he can do as he pleases with any country of the world. And I also think it's okay for you to know that and love America, some version of it in your mind. Obviously we, there's none of us can love everything about it. I don't even love everything about myself. Right. But there's a vision of myself and a story I tell myself about my life that I believe in. And I think you can believe that for your country too. And I, and I think that you you can make up a story for any country and say, this is a bad place. And you can make up a story for any country and you can say, this is a pretty good place. you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And um, yeah, you've got to decide what version you're gonna tell, right And if you tell the one where America's a pretty good place, which I think is a perfectly plausible story to tell about America, especially if it's relative to other nations of the world throughout history. I think I think by comparison the United States shines brightly um, but as a uh, as a, if we compare it to the heavenly city, it doesn't look great. I think it's normal to fear what's going to happen in your country. If it's changed, especially if it's changing in ways away from things that you highly value. But I think, I think still we, we pray to God that he'd be merciful to us to be merciful to our nation. I think it's fine to pray for. I think asking God to make us a, a country of righteousness and proper freedom, I think is perfectly fine to pray. I think it's okay to pray your politics as long as you pray, you pray the principles of your politics without assuming that, you know, the proper policies Of what you believe is right politically, nationally, and patriotically, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So I will Mm -hmm. pray for justice, but I don't necessarily think I know that means that every African American should receive seventy-eight thousand dollars. Right? Like I, I don't know. I don't know what the. But I know that I believe God wants justice. That I should pray for justice, and then I should try to like act for justice in the ways that I can understand, in good conscience. So I think I think right now there's a lot of Christians in America that are concerned about the country. I think some of it is being whipped up and is, makes it sound worse than it is for political reasons because the country is so narrowly divided in terms of its electorates. It's also true that increasingly people are sorting by where they live so that more and more places are not close politically anymore. They're more than 20 points one direction or another. Those places tend to be overwhelmed by that ideology, right? Right which means that those places get really concerned when the other ideology wins on a larger scale, like the national, so like liberal centers in America went buck nuts crazy when Trump was elected and conservative places got really fearful when Biden was elected, does that make sense? So there's a lot of that into like, part of it is Christians can just not fall in for some of that stuff, right? The sovereignty Mm -hmm. of God um, works in all kinds of ways. But of course, remember the sovereignty of God allowed for um, Christians to be burned alive under Nero too. Like this, this, the fact Mm -hmm. that God is utterly Mm -hmm. sovereign doesn't mean that you're going to be spared pain. And, um, many times God uses his sovereignty to spare his people pain, but that's not like a precept that we can say, if we trust God, he will spare us pain. No, if you you trust in God, the people of the world may throw your body into a grave and he will raise it up again.
0: So Another question related to um, I guess I think the un- underlying question here is in regards to maybe government control. So in light of constant surveillance surveillance and totalitarian creep, is there anything practical that the church recommends or doesn't recommend? For example, do you recommend getting off social media or getting rid of smartphones or not having an Alexa?
1: Yeah. The church does not recommend any of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I remember Jill Reese, um, her husband, Tim, uh, because you can like email Google and they can send you their whole document on you with everything they know about you. And Tim like yeah. So Tim got his from Google and read like everything they know about him. And it was like, it was like eight or nine pages. It was like, it was pretty long. And he said, it was surprised. It was surprising. Some things that they knew and surprising how much they didn't know, you know? And, um, the issue here is not the fact that there is big tech though. There are issues like there Okay, here's the, here's the problem. There are 500 issues here, not, not a couple. And some of these problems are unprecedented problems. Like the capacity for surveillance is greater than it's ever been. Like we carry surveillance devices in our pockets voluntarily. The two are tied together, right? That's a new problem. That's not, a, I mean, the, the, the people who, who lived under the Soviet Soviets didn't have that particular problem. They had similar ones, but not that particular. one. Revolutions or revolt pushing back against things require people to stand together in solidarity. However, people have different thresholds for when things are bad enough to take a stand. That's the fundamental human problem. When do you stand? Right? Some people want to stand when the first thing happens, and some people don't stand until the last thing happens. But in order to stop the thing, a lot of people have to stand at some place. Now, if you understand that, you can understand the behaviors of a lot of people. Because there's some Americans right now who are like, we're falling into utilitarianism right now. Is that true? No. No, it's not true right now. But are there disturbing things happening that are easily seen to be on the trajectory towards a state in which personal freedoms are profoundly harmed, at least for people of certain ideologies or thoughts? Absolutely. Sure. So I think, I mean, I think um, I, like, I am going to resist things before I think they're really bad. So I'm going to speak up earlier rather than later. Now, I want to say something on the other side of that because... Some pe- one of the things that happens for American conservatives who seem to be much more sensitive to this, because it's their ideology that's getting attacked much more, because right now people of more progressive ideology own all the sort of like commanding heights of the culture, right? And you can be like, well, we just had Trump as president. Yes, but the entire executive branch is Democrats. I don't know if you know this, but like, just look at the voting patterns in Washington, D.C. Almost everybody who works in government, who actually controls the central government of of America, is a Democrat. That is that is, is highly progressive and votes progressive very regularly. So the government employees, and there's millions and millions and millions of them, right? Are, are profoundly Democrat leaning, right? Universities are profoundly Democrat leaning. The news media is profoundly Democrat leaning, right? And so on and so on and so on. And, And now it used to be that business wasn't so much that way, like very large businesses. A lot of those were giving like 50, 50, or they were kind of cynical or some of them were like on the right because they wanted free markets for their businesses. That's actually going away now with big tech. Big tech companies, because they're coming out of places like San Francisco and and the coast of California, a lot of these are getting like super woke and they're super progressive. Mm-hmm. So all the commanding mm-hmm. heights are highly progressive in America. Now, and I'm not saying that because like I'm against progressives. I'm saying that because it's a fact. And I think we should be able to right. freely right. acknowledge that. Okay. Now, if that's the case, who is most likely going to fall into the corruption of owning the heights and having control of other people? It's clearly progressives in my view. And, and that's not an issue of like like calling balls and strikes. It's just human nature, right? Human nature is you're going to spike the football on the people you just scored on. 51% of people get to pee in the cornflakes of the of 49% of the people. Democracy is two wolves and a lamb voting on what's for lunch, right? Like this is the nature of majorities and control. So it's, it's not weird that people who would be of a more conservative bent would be sounding an alarm earlier rather than later. That's not weird. Right? And so I think you should now, If you want peace in a country, one of the things you have to do is you have to say, if progressivism is in the ascendancy in certain ways, are there any legitimate reasons why it is? Right? Because one of the things about revolution, and it's enormously destructive, it kills millions and millions of people, It's it's usually horrible and it has bad results. But usually what happens is there were a group of people petitioning for justice that were ignored who were easy pickings for the people who are pushing the ideology, one of the reasons why Marxism succeeded is because they they were a group of people they were able to convince they were being they were treating terribly unjustly, right? So one of the things to consider is when we look at like people who are, for example, protesting relative to injustices in terms of disparities along the lines of racial groups. Is there anything that we should that should be conceded in that? I'm, I'm assuming that the, the, the that the hypothetical listener at this point is like a conservative person who like would ask that question right where I would go from there is like okay look around at your black neighbors and friends and say is are there like things that they're petitioning about and asking for a redress of their grievances where we should be like yeah we should do something about that right and so that's one of the reasons one of the reasons why I am am involved in like things like can we do things with schooling and can we do things to try to create um, better outcomes like I don't believe that Ethically, equity is the baseline for human existence—that we should all get the same outcome, right? But I do believe that there is a spread where the those who have much have too much, and those who have little have too little. Such that those who have too little revolt and destroy the lives of everybody, as as just a human phenomenon. And so, therefore, I think you really got to attend to those who have too little, and therefore mercy and charity and justice push us towards trying to make their lives better, so that the society can continue in peace. So even if I don't believe in progressive ideologies about race, which for the most part. For the most part, I don't. There are a number of things I do agree with, but for the most part, I don't believe in the like progressive line on race. And I, I very much don't believe in their remedies more than their accusations. Some of their accusations I buy into. Most of their remedies I don't think are wise, right? But I'm still going to look at that because I want to make sure that there are aren't legitimate reasons why people are being persuaded to go towards revolutionary ends that destroy the lives of all. Right, and so in that case, sometimes you have to like look at what you're being accused of and see if there's some things you should concede. And so one of the ways that I want to quote save America from a conservative perspective, so to speak, is to make sure that the real grievances offered to me by progressive people or people that they're speaking for are being listened to by me, right? Because it, same same thing with you with like your kid. Like you like you don't keep your family together by not listening to your kid that's having a problem. You try to figure out what's really going on. And try to help them become be part of the family, but that doesn't mean that you necessarily do everything they say. Does so that make sense? So anyway, I think that's all part of the mix here. So like don't panic. Recognize that like some of this is being whipped up, up because they're trying to move votes around. Um, the media is not competent to, to tell you what's happening in our country, right? Some of it's true, some of it's false, most of it's way out of context, right? God will do as he pleases, and he's a good God. Right. Our job is to be his faithful remnant, always in whatever country we're in. Christians will never be a majority of any country because they're never a majority of any society. We are a faithful remnant and we are a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. And so we have to give witness in every society we are, whether it's in decline or whether it's in expansion and we need to be who we're meant to be in it. And even if we're patriotic and we love our country and everybody should love their country, right? Not just because it's like the great experiment of America, but like you should love your home. You should love your people. You should love, like you don't have to be a blood and soil Nazi to love your blood and soil. Like you, it's good to love Wisconsin's hills and dales and trees and the blood of the people who are your kin without having to be a clansman who wants to kill anybody who wants to cut down one of your trees. You know, like it, we, we struggle with some of these balances in human life, right? Anyway, that's probably plenty for this question.
0: Well, and I think that answer that you just gave dovetails well into our last question, um, which was in regard to the thank you and 2020 giving statement email that you sent out, I think a month ago or so. Um, So you mentioned in that email, um, this was the very end. I'm just going to read what you had written there. You said, I have little hope that circumstances are going to get easier for us on this earth. However, this should neither surprise nor deter us, for it is no reason that our life together cannot spiritually improve and expand as we are transformed into the image of Christ in true righteousness and holiness. We must be entering. We may be entering a time of both suffering and thriving. So this person said, I agree with you, but I would really like to hear you unpack what you concisely stated here.
1: Yeah, it's a really dangerous thing to ask me to unpack things. But uh, I'll try to keep it relatively brief. Right. <laughs> okay. um, so first of all, I do and don't believe that. Like, I mean, I am I am privy to the macroeconomic projections that in you know a hundred years will be twenty times richer than we are now. Like, um, there's one way when you look at uh, like life on this earth. There's, there's one perspective of which like, everything's getting better. It's getting better at exponential rates. It's unbelievable how much things are getting better, and things could get way better, and all we have to do is like not stop it from happening by doing mm-hmm. stupid things, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: However, I do believe human beings are really good at doing stupid things, especially when they don't understand economics. They don't have good civics training. Mm-hmm. They aren't believers. They aren't living virtuous lives rooted in religious principle, and so on. They don't understand liberty. Mm -hmm. They don't know why we've been so successful over the last 300 years and so on. And so um, I have a lot of faith also that human beings do have the ability to destroy our otherwise bright future. Now, um, I also think it's good to be prepared for bad things to happen, whether they do or not. Mm -hmm. To make yourself Mm -hmm. stronger not only makes you able to handle bad times – but if you prepare well, one of the things that Christians do not realize is that in Christian faith, good times are a terrible trial to the morality of the soul and to our thankfulness toward God,
0: mm.
1: who we are closest yeah. to oftentimes when we're most desperately depending on him. Affluence is, an, is, the, is perhaps the worst and most terrible of the earth's current temptations. And so I think, like being cognizant of that and seeking to grow in true righteousness and holiness in faith in all ways through sacrifice is incredibly important constantly. So I think that that's critical too. However, I do agree with what I said in that the trajectory of things right now at this present moment, isn't fantastic. However, I, I am not a Hegelian. I don't believe that history must do anything. I believe that we choose. I mean, I also believe that God sovereignly decrees, but I also believe that functionally we choose the history that we're going to make. And so we can screw it all up. We can destroy our society. We can ruin everything or we cannot. And human beings correct all the time, right? And they they, they sweat out fevers that they have publicly and in societies. And we have the capacity to do that. However, I will say, let me say this. One of the things that the Orthodox Christian Alexander Solzhenitsyn said in the Gulag Archipelago was um, that only really happens if a significant group of people refuse to live by lies. That if if people are, are moral cowards and they allow themselves to live by lies, then the people who lie can stay in control. And it's only when some people refuse to live by lies that the whole thing starts to unravel. And so one of the things I would say is if you want to have a bright future, if you want your children to have a bright future, you have to refuse to agree to lie in the ways your culture is choosing to lie. And the problem is, is that we're to the point now in the United States that if the particular lies you're talking about are progressive lies, it's going to cost you. And it could cost you your job. It could cost you a lot of things about your future. Now, I'm not saying that conservatives or libertarians or liberals or people of other persuasions intellectually don't tell lies. What I'm saying is if you contradict those lies publicly, you're not going to pay with your career. That's what I'm saying. In America right now, there was a time during the Cold War where that was true. Where like if you you said certain kinds of things and you were, you were like a Marxist, and there were a lot of them. Um, you could get blackballed, and your career could be ruined. And you it, like you believed in Marxism, but you weren't true. You weren't a communist. Like that happened. That's not true now. Right now, you're gonna get blackballed. You're gonna get shut out. You're gonna get attacked. You're not gonna get into the college you wanted to get into. You're gonna be. You're not gonna get that job you want. You're gonna lose your position or your right to speak publicly. You're gonna be deplatformed. You're gonna be blah 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 blah. blah if you fall under the conservative, libertarian, classical liberal realm of things, which used to be most all Americans like up until like one generation ago. Right. So, um, and so, and so that, that kind of radical progressivism that is creating that thing has a lot of lies built into it, especially relative to Christian teaching and truth. And so if you refuse to tell those lies, it's going to cost you. Right. And so what I've tried to do is to do two things. One is to decide I'm not going to fail to tell the truth relative to those lies and i'm going to try to make sure that i tell the truth relative to other lies that don't cost me as much but i have but to try to be as consistent as i can be so that i'm not i'm not trying to like make a name for myself as a culture warrior i'm just trying to tell the truth as a christian confessor yeah and that's very hard yeah. to do because you start attacking a certain group and people start patting you on the back even if it's a minority group and like as a pastor mm-hmm. you can be kind of insulated and so i could make a good like living for myself attacking liberals you know if i wanted to but i don't want to there's a lot of liberal stuff that's right i mean i am like politically i'm a classical liberal that's what i believe i believe people should be free i believe in conservative principles morally and religiously i believe politically we should organize ourselves liberally I believe that means that most people should be able to exist libertarianly. And I believe we should be working together through common bonds in civil society towards progress. And I'm a progressive, like for God's sakes, you know, like, so I'm, mm-hmm. I don't, have, I don't really have a side. <laughs> right. But, um, right. But like, I believe that there's a kind of progressivism that is, that has a totalitarian bent to it. It has a shut other people up bent to it. And I will, I, and, and like, for me it's like you can you can almost feel it viscerally when a group becomes bullies. You feel it. And they'll even still like sometimes they'll still refer to themselves as minorities, but they're but they're in the majority in terms of a power and ascendancy. And and they don't even realize it yet because they still think of themselves as disempowered, right? But it but they aren't. They're empowered, right? So, um, you refuse to live by lies. Teach your kids to refuse to live by lies. And stand with people who refuse to live by lies and who tell the truth. Even if you wouldn't have told it exactly that way. um, And do it with virtue. Because I think one of the issues with Donald Trump was, I think he said a bunch of things that were true. And he was spitting in the face of people and and not bowing down. But he did it in such a way as that, like, even people who agreed with him, like, were like, yeah, but you're you're also telling the lie that it's okay to treat people like they're not made in the image of God. And so, like... Yeah, I, like I don't know how to support this, like because like at one level I believe like freedom is good or religious freedom is good, or that we should like, like the law should apply to everybody the same or like or that like yes police. In the three hundred million interactions they have with people, are going to interact with some people badly. Some of those people are going to be minority people, and there will be therefore police brutality against minority people. But for God's sakes, this is a very difficult job. It's all the stuff we don't want to do for ourselves, and we're making these other people do it. And they have the highest divorce rates, and the highest suicide rates, because of the cost of that job. And we're not going to we're not going to vilify these people. Like like I, like I'm on board with that. But like when you treat people yeah. the way he treated people, you're kind of like, well, I can't be on board with that either, right? And so I think what we need to be we need to recognize that we we can neither like play the game, nor can we be boorish and vindictive. And venal right. in the
0: way we do it. And, and disregard and, 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 humanity.
1: <laughs> in vain. Like, like, yeah. it, like it there has to be a, like an abundance of character when you face face the an empowered majority, right? Um, because what we want is peace, right? Like we want we want peace with everyone. We I want I want progressives and conservatives and libertarians and people black and white and Hmong and and Korean and like all to come to high point church and uh, experience the kingdom's values together and believe in its Christ together and to know their God together and then to sort out their policies lovingly together. And And frankly, I also believe that like all these people are right. Like I, like I think I personally, I believe that progressivism is connected strongly to the viscerally feminine ideals of nurture and conservatism and libertarianism tend to be connected to the more masculine. I mean, if you think about it, um, men and women are the most split voting groups in America. Like more and more black men voted for Trump and more and more black women voted for, for Biden in the last, right? Like we split, we didn't split more racially in the last election. We actually split more by gender because Trump was more like sort of virily masculine and being like, we got to go in a masculine direction. And people, and a lot of men were like, yeah. And, and like the Democrats are like, no, we don't. We need to continue in this feminine direction. And a lot of, a lot of women are like, yes, well, that's right. Right? And like, wh- who did Trump lose? He lost suburban white mothers. That's why he lost, right? And so, like, it was a f- it was a female male thing. Well, like God created men and women to come into complementary union, <laughs> making families, and we exist together in a country. Mm-hmm. So we have to figure out how a country mm-hmm. is both masculine and feminine. Those and anyway, blah, blah, blah. You like, you see where I'm going with this? So like, I don't want any group to win. Like, if the Democrats win or the Republicans win, like they get everything that they want. I'm not sure that's good. Right. Right. So,
0: It's very complicated. You need to be able, like you were saying, you need to not disregard the lies or you need to be able to stand up to them. That means you need to know what they are in the first place and be able to recognize truth from the lies. And that takes effort and learning, like digging and, and seeking understanding and not just listening to the, you know, whatever your number one podcast is that you choose to listen to, or your number one radio station or whatever, like to to seek out more voices, to seek understanding, even if you don't agree, the more that we can understand where people are coming from. Um, I I just, I think the truth will be illuminated
1: in that. Yeah. And I think that we need to take your fear to prayer Mm -hmm. and you need to pray in a way that alleviates your fear. If you are afraid of what's going on in your country and then you go pray to the Lord, and when you get done praying, you're just as fearful as you were. You didn't pray right. Mm, you yeah. didn't release things to God's yeah. sovereignty. You didn't trust in His protection and providence. You didn't recognize that um, that nations rise and fall. Right? Like you, like you didn't receive His peace. You mm-hmm. asked Him to let, help your party win. And yeah. sometimes, even when we when we know what we're asking for, are truly good things. Like you, when you ask God for him to, to maintain liberty in this country or for him to bring about justice, as you see in this country, like, you know, you're asking for something good. Right. Um, but you don't you don't know God's policies,
0: mm-hmm. you
1: know? Yeah. And um, so it's OK to pray. I think it's even OK to pray for th- some policies that you think are right, that you think are so obvious that you think are right. But you've got to do it in a certain kind of way where you're releasing it to the wisdom of God rather than demanding that he do the thing. I want to make one more comment based on your your virtues. Um, I re- I wrote three encouraging notes today. You were saying before, but Minohar, like, write them an encouraging note. Like, mm-hmm. um, you and Aaron, you and Jill do that a lot. Um, don't underestimate um, the power of affirmation, especially written and mailed. Like, I I write so I like write out encouraging notes with a fountain pen, and mm-hmm. I put them in like like craft paper and like a lot of times I actually have like a like a wax stamp I put on it. And I just yeah. do that to just show like how important that person is. And like, sometimes mm-hmm. I'm only writing a few lines on it. But like, man, I, I just people just come back to me. And they're like, Nick, that note you wrote me. It's just like, I've been living off that for two months. Just, mm-hmm. I mean, just like have a hobby of making other people feel good
0: mm-hmm.
1: for like really meaningful yeah. things. Like they're like, like talk about their real virtues and like what they do great and the legacy that's going to leave and like, or the hope that you have in Christ and like whatever suffering that they're going to go through, it's going to be worth it, you know, and that, um, that you want to stand with them and and so on and that you're praying for them and this is what you're praying. And it makes a huge difference. And, um, I like, I, I try to send at least one note a week. Sometimes I do more than that. And, uh, I, I see as much, I see almost as much payoff for that as anything I do that I can see. It really makes a difference in people's lives. So encourage, affir- like have a ministry of affirmation. And I'm really encouraged, there's a woman in our church, you know this, I think, right? There's a woman in our church that uh, is starting a business of like Christian cards around substantive discipleship. It's like, it's really kind of funny. So, oh yeah. Last thing, listeners, um, the conversation between Aaron, Nicole, Hillary, was Lisa on that one? Yeah. It was It's in and the Jill- living room, right? and Jill, and you guys talk about the Enneagram or is that on Lisa's podcast?
0: No, that was on the date podcast. night podcast.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yes. On the date night podcast, Lisa and Tony Dahliger, there's this conversation <laughs> of all high point women about the Enneagram, both. It's like occultic origins and how we should deal with that. And some of its usefulness. I thought that that conversation, that conversation was my dream 10 years ago when I became the pastor of high point, that people who were discipled at high point church, who heard my preaching, who were ministered to in these ministries, would have that kind of discernment and wisdom and openness and care and interest and love to understand the world as best they could and to apply it well. It was, I was, I listened to that. I was was like digging out in my yard and I was like, this is just like, I feel like I'm listening to my grown children and I'm so proud. So it was, that was really good. So uh, the date night podcast, Lisa and Tony Dahlger, the, the all girls night on the Enneagram was really good. Yeah,
0: (laughs) Shameless plug. Yeah, Great. Thanks Nick.
1: Yep. All right. See you guys next time. thanks for listening to this episode of the engage and equip podcast if you like this episode rate us review us on your favorite podcast platform and also share this episode with a friend that is the best way that we have to reach new listeners for a question that you want us to answer on the podcast or just a general podcast topic send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org and we'll do our best to fit it in also, if you'd like to find more episodes of the podcast, you can do so by going to highpointchurch.org slash podcast, or else we're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google apps like that. So until next time, thanks for joining us for this episode of Engage and Equip.